0: If not, then cut it down. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue rulers said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on these days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day? from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing.
1: So before we begin, I want to uh, share with you something I learned. I can't remember exactly where I learned it. I think it might have been part of some mission training I did at some point. Possibly a kind of university time, but it was a, it was a while ago. Some of you might know it, and you might recognise it when I start to teach it to you. But don't spoil the surprise for the others, okay? Uh, some of you may uh, have forgotten that you ever know this, and it'll come back uh, perhaps from some mission training you did in years gone by as well. So I want you to repeat some numbers for me, okay? 323. Three twenty-three, six twenty-three and 1013. 10 13. 323, 10.13. 3.23, 6.23, 10.13. 3.23, One more time. 3.23, 6.23, 10.13. 3.23, 6.23, 1013. 323, 623 1013. Okay, We'll come back to that, and I'll see if you can remember them in a minute. Um, so this Luke passage, um, it's a bit of a tough one, um, it might just be that um, I wasn't that well. Some of you know I'm kind of going through chemotherapy at the moment, so I have ill weeks and well weeks. Thankfully, I'm preaching on a well week, but I read it on an ill week. And it hit me as <laughs> a particularly tough passage, I have to say. Uh, but I think, I think I've think i got there. Uh, it's got three sections. Um, the first bit is a story about some disasters, some nice disasters, and some warnings to repent. Then there's a middle bit which seems to be a sort of gardening anecdote Uh, and then the, the end bit is the healing of a woman on the Sabbath and if we weren't trying to get through the whole of Luke We may well have done them in three little sections, and you may well have had three completely separate sermons. So how do these three things hang together? Well, maybe we'll get to the end and work out if they do, Uh, but we're going to look at them really briefly, those three separate things in turn, asking that God reveal something of his character and plan for us through these words in Luke. So the first section is something that you might see on a banner or being shouted by a certain kind of street preacher perhaps unless you repent you too shall perish okay that's cheerful isn't it um It's important to notice these are the words of Jesus. These are things that Jesus says. We can't ignore them. We can't write them off as the kind of things that some people uh, shout uh, at. Um, I'm thinking particularly as anyone anyone goes to Victoria Station uh, on that roundabout outside Victoria Station. I always feel a little bit bad when the guy looks me in the eye and shouts at me, and I kind of don't quite know whether to smile encouragingly or or feel quite bad about it. Um, But these are words of Jesus, unless you repent, you too will perish. But it's not his emphasis if we look at this this passage. Jesus reminds his listeners of two incidents in their recent history. The Galilean Jews had been slaughtered on the orders of Pilate and 18 individuals who died when the tower had fallen on them. So These are two incidences. uh, One where uh, something horrible has happened kind of as an act of will of a person and another something horrible has happened just by accident or or kind of natural disaster and when disaster befalls or people die our reaction in our society is very often to focus on their good qualities isn't it how awful something so terrible has happened to somebody so good or so young or so brilliant you don't ever hear oh well you know they weren't they weren't that great anyway We we hear when horrible things happen, we tend to focus on their good points. The tradition in Jesus' time was almost the complete opposite. When bad things happened, it was kind of assumed that it was because they'd done some horrible deed and they probably deserved everything that was coming to them, and that it was a just punishment from God. But Jesus kind of steers a middle path, and he makes clear that neither of these positions is correct. His emphasis is that the fact that the people who perished... Were no more guilty than the people who survived. What were those numbers? 323, 623, 1013. Does anybody know? Has anyone done this before? Not John. Anybody recognize this? Where is it from? Tim? Tim doesn't count. Tim knows everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Tell us. What is it? it's called the Roman Road, they are references from Romans. Exactly. Excellent, very good. It is, it's a great gospel hack. 323, all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. This is what Jesus is saying. None of them were more guilty than the others. They've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. We are all guilty. We cannot rest on the fact that there are others who were more guilty than us. It's not like one of those exercises where the teachers try to learn the names of the children and line you up in height order or something. We're not going to get lined up in order of who's more and less guilty with an arbitrary line drawn along the row. We're all guilty. Equally, we can't assume that uh, our good fortune isn't a reward for our good behaviour and our misfortune isn't a punishment for our sin. We've all equally fallen short of the glory of God and the standard of perfection that he sets. And therefore, we are all equally liable to face the consequences. And the consequences, if you're preaching the gospel from the Roman road, as John knows it, 623, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's a clear choice, life and death. An equal fate for those who have fallen short. An equal fate for all of us. We're all headed for death and separation from God, but all equally offered the opportunity of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then 10.13, Romans 10.13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, And that's the same as the Joel reading that we had. So we're all liable for the consequence of sin, but equally we're all entitled uh, to this offer of saving grace that God gives us. And the way to all of us is open by the same route. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. This shouldn't drive fear in us, but amazement at such a holy and glorious God can make such a lavish offer to all of us who have fallen short that whoever believes in him will not perish but receive everlasting life. Here is an insight into the character of God, the one who is perfect, the one who is blameless, the one whom the presence of sin is so abhorrent he literally cannot stand for it to be in his presence, one who is the definition of all that is good, a God who is so invested in the fate of humanity, so in love with his creation, that despite all our failings and our shortcomings, our many evil and shameful deeds that should separate us so utterly from him, he fights to make a way for us to be reconciled. And what a way. What a way that he makes such a liberation compared to that complex system of rules and requirements that we read throughout the Old Testament. It's not based on our status or our ability to pay It's not dependent on our intellectual capacity to apply some kind of rigorous learning, but a simple call to repentance and belief. Here is the gift of God. The call to repentance and the offer of forgiveness, so complete that it secures our eternal life. Now, I don't know if you spotted the theme of the first half of the service. Um, I think you actually mentioned it, but the theme, <laughs> the theme of the first half of the service was forgiveness. All the all the songs that we sang were around forgiveness, thinking about the forgiveness um, that is on offer from God, because repentance and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. As we come to God in repentance, we understand more about the weight of the gift of His forgiveness, and as we receive more of His forgiveness, we become more aware of our need for it, and therefore we're driven to repentance. I included the reading from Joel earlier in the service because it so beautifully sums up that relationship with the call from God to his people uh, that we, when we were preparing, thought was right for today. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. What an insight into the character of God. That's part one. The second part is the gardening anecdote. And it reads a little bit like an episode of Gardener's Question Time. Uh, The question is one that I can well relate to, for I too have a fig tree. Uh, It's now about five years old, and it has yet to bear any fruit. Um, It was a gift, so it's quite precious, so I'm not going to bin it anytime soon. And it does have quite attractive leaves, but to be honest, there does come a point when you wonder if having a fig tree without any figs on it is a worthwhile thing, and what the point of it is if it's not ever going to have fruit. So the man that we hear about in Luke is having similar problems with his fig tree. He's planted it in his vineyard, and he's been looking for fruit for only three years, and he's not finding any. So he instructs the man who cares for the vineyard to cut it down. Why should it use up the soil, he says. However, the gardener is more generous towards the fruitless fig tree and suggests a better plan would be to leave it alone for another year. Give it a bit of tender loving care, a bit of weeding, a bit of fertiliser. Give it a good chance of bearing fruit the following year. And the gardener is agreed that if after this extra attention there is still no fruit, then perhaps the time has come for it to be cut down. So what does this story tell us? Unhelpfully, like many parables, Jesus doesn't then go on to explain explicitly what he means by this little story. He moves on to the the story we're going to hear about in a second. Usually in scripture, when these kind of stories are told, that God is cast in the role of the gardener. And if we apply that here, it could mean that Jesus is this man who is frustrated by the fig tree after three years it hasn't borne fruit. Three years perhaps significant, perhaps matching the time of Jesus' ministry. Is this an insight into Jesus feeling weary and frustrated with those around him who failed to grasp the urgency of his message or have yet to repent and receive forgiveness or who have yet to bear fruit? If so... That makes the father the one who gently offers to continue to watch and nurture the poor fig tree, to give it another chance, to encourage, to water, to weed and to feed it and hope that it bears fruit. However, many of the commentators attribute the roles the other way round. They cast God as the impatient man wanting to cut the fig tree down and Jesus as the one urging patience and restraint. I don't feel qualified to offer an opinion on to which one of those is right. But I found it really interesting, this image of a conversation between Jesus and the Father that demonstrates how interested and invested they are into the fate of this victory, That is, the people, if you haven't worked it out, the church or us as individuals. And how critical it is that this victory bear fruit. I love the idea of that conversation. And I love that whichever way round the roles are cast... The conclusion is mercy, more time, more opportunity. The hand of judgment is stayed for the sake of the fruit that might yet come. And what is that fruit? Well, a good place to start might be the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A people that bear these fruits won't be cut down, that's for sure. And all these give evidence of a life changed by God. All of these are the kind of things you'd hope and expect to see, those who are walking in a life steeped in that repentance and forgiveness. But also, of course, fruit in its most literal sense is the means by which the plant regenerates itself. So we would expect to see new believers being grown, nurtured, and brought to maturity within our community. And we are fig tree bearing fruit. And so we come to the woman a woman with no name who we are told has been crippled by a spirit for 18 years this woman no doubt an outcast because of her disability and a low priority because of her sex and nobody in that society worse probably a burden an embarrassment and yet Jesus saw her scripture says and we read, When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and he said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. But it's not the woman or her healing that is the focus of this passage. It's the indignation of the religious leaders. I do love an indignant religious leader. They, one of my favourite characters in the Bible. They teach us so much. The, the, in this case, they are appalled how dare this man heal somebody on a sabbath great you can imagine them saying this and believing their own pomp there are six days for work they say let her come and be healed on one of those days 18 years she'd been crippled it wasn't as if on any other one of the days on the uh, the synagogue had been open; that uh, the rulers had stepped in to help her or to save her. In the present chapter, in the previous chapters of Luke, we've, been, we've encountered a similar event where Jesus and his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus declared that the Son of the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we know his views on this subject. <clears throat> we can see here too; Jesus is demonstrating that he is above the rules made by religious leaders. And he's calling out their hypocrisy in in preferring the strict interpretation of the law against the freedom of the woman. But the thing that I really noticed here was this sense of urgency. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, you're free. And immediately she straightened up and praised God. So often with Jesus, there is an immediacy to his actions. When there is an opportunity to heal or to set free or to deliver, he does it. Immediately, he doesn't make excuses or back away, he is generous with his attention and his efforts towards those who need mercy and forgiveness. Notice that the call to delay bringing judgment against the fig tree is also typical. Where there is a delay to God's actions, it is often to spare someone or to give more time for repentance and forgiveness. The psalmist says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger but abounding in love so here is a challenge for those of us who are seeking to become more like jesus and to follow his example in our own lives are we similarly compassionate and gracious do we rush immediately to act whenever the opportunity presents itself to bless or to heal even the most marginalized and overlooked in our society do we delay our judgment and always give second chances, even to those who maybe we feel might not deserve them. Ephesians 4, verse 32, reminds us of the high standards to which we are called. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So this is what I think God's saying to us through this passage tonight. If you feel far from God, he's calling you back. If you fear that sin has separated you from God, he has made a way and he's offering you forgiveness. If you fear that God is like an angry father waiting to punish you where you've gone wrong, listen. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jesus, the son who knows best of all the character of God, promises, if we repent, we will be met with love and forgiveness. If you're feeling weary and barren tonight, God is urging you to be fruitful. He has not abandoned you. He's like a loving gardener who is willing to invest time and effort into nurturing and sustaining you. He longs for your life to be a beautiful display of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. His heart is for your conversations and relationships to bear much fruit, for others to come to know him through their interactions with you. And he speaks to you tonight from the words of Isaiah 58 verse 11. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And if you're feeling challenged tonight that maybe sometimes you miss the opportunities that God sets before you, that maybe sometimes you make excuses or back away, that perhaps you overlook the marginalised, you've been reminded that God has been so generous to you and you want to share it with others, then maybe tonight ask the Holy Spirit to renew you, to inspire you, to prompt you and to guide you, that you will perfectly fulfill God's plan for you and that you will make the most of the opportunities that are before you for his glory. So before we close and sing our final song, shall we pray? Lord God, we have all sinned and fallen so far short of your glory. We're so sorry for all that we've done that's got in the way of our relationship with you. We're so sorry for the harsh words that we've spoken, for the people that we've hurt, ignored or offended. We're sorry for the wrong that we've done and the opportunities to do good that we've missed. And we receive with such grateful hearts the promise of your forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that you are a merciful God who gives us the opportunity to know you and to become more like you. We welcome the Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives to change, inspire and direct us. We ask that you would take our lives and use them for your praise and glory, that you would work out your plan for us and make us obedient to your will. Let us be quick to bless and slow to anger. Make us bold when there are opportunities to act and bring healing and wholeness to others. Knit us, we pray, into a loving community of forgiven believers that together can be a powerful expression of your saving power and part of your kingdom coming here in Horsham. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.